4: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights on a Wednesday night. Show number 39. This is the show... Back from me holidays yes <laughs> i 've been away for well it 's been about two weeks, but I think the last probably the last three weeks worth of shows have all been kind of like pre recorded and kind of set away, and I set them away you know, and I honestly I was off flew away, and there 's been no kind of internet broadband anywhere like anything like that, so I had no idea if anything was going to work and then when I got home, it found every every kind of show had been uploaded fine, and it had worked. Oh, I was a happy little bunny. But mind, trying to get all these shows out and, like, recorded before I went away, it was a nightmare. Ah, I don't know if I was, honestly, I don't know if I was batting or balling, to be quite honest. I even, get this, I even, I even dreamt when I was out in bloody Italy with my family and friends. I even dreamt about one of my narrators, Diane. This bloom and this vivid dream as well. You know? And I spoke to Diane on email. And I was telling her, I was just, bloody hell, man. And I'm thinking, I wonder if it's all to do with like, the heat, because it was hot over there. Man, was it hot. And, you know, I like, just kind of... All these shows I had to kind of pre-record and get sorted out. I mean, I must—I think there's probably maybe six I had to kind of do, you know, within, like, say, three days or something like that. Oh, <gasps> nightmare. But, yes, I bloody... Big dream about Diane, <laughs> and and it was weird because and I, I hope someone can help us out here because I cannot remember for the life of us what the film was called. You know that film where there's like a couple and they actually they have this affair, but the and it's and it was nothing monkey mind you, me dream, but they have this affair where they kind of. They meet every year, do you know what I mean, once a year in a hotel. I'm sure it was from the 50s or 60s. I can't remember, you know, when it was. I just got this vague idea, this vague impression of this film. And then eventually, I'm sure, it's it's either she doesn't turn up for a a film. Well, that's what actually happened in my dream. Diane didn't turn up right at the end when we are dead old. Do you know what I mean? And obviously, you know, just old age caught up. But I don't know if that's the same case in a film, but... That's a shout out before we get into oral delights. If anyone can kind of let us know what that film's called, I'll be one happy chappy. So yes, we are on to oral delights number thirty nine. So we'll kick off with some Pori.
3: For spacers snarled in the hair of comets. BY BRUCE BOSTON If you've heard the stellar Vox Humana, the untuned ear takes for static. If you've kissed the burning eyelids of God and seized upon the moon's reflection, disjointed and backwards in the choppy ink of some alien sea, then you know how sleek and fleshy, how treacherous the stars can become. While the universe falls with no boundary, you and I sit in a cafe of a port city, on a planet whose name we've forgotten. The vacuum is behind us and before us. The spiced ale is cool and hallucinogenic. Already the candle sparkles in our plates. First appeared in Asimov's Science Fiction Magazine 1984, 1985 Risling Award, SFPA Best Short Poem.
4: Just like to say, thank you, Bruce Boston. Don't forget, all copyright is Mr. Bruce Boston and Julie Davis over there at Forgotten Classics again. Thank you. I will be dreaming about you next time. So we are on to... Flash fiction. Now, this flash fiction, and I swear down, this was the one that kind of, one of the main stories, short kind of stories, that kind of kicked me off into the kind of, the science fiction area, the science fiction genre, anything like that. Or this is the one that kind of, nailed the kind of, the phaser, the laser through the heart of me, you know, and kind of made us a kind of a sci-fi junkie and it's by a guy called G. David Nordley and it was published in kind of fantasy and science fiction and I can't even remember when but I'm sure it was probably about 92, somewhere around there and that's, you know, if everyone kind of knows, if everyone who actually doesn't know me, you know, who's kind of just tuned into the show, I wasn't a, a, a kind of a reader, a big reader until I kind of well, I didn't read anything until I bloody, probably in my 20s sometime. But, you know, gobbled him up after that. But it was this story, Barriers, by G. G David Norley. That just kind of, I thought, wow, fantastic. And I was lucky enough to get it. You know, I can, this was one of the first stories I, I got narrated. I got it narrated by Martin, MCL Studios. And I'm lucky enough, I think it might happen the week after next. Which if you listen to this in kind of all time sorted out areas, you know, time displacement, you haven't got a clue (laughs) what date it is. But hopefully I'm going to get Martin on and we're going to talk about all, you know, kind of Martin's role in kind of helping the Sophie, you know, like doing all the narration. Sometimes he kind of helps out with, it sometimes, a lot of times Martin will help out with kind of the the kind of taking the hiss out of people's narrations and stuff like that. I'll just give you a little bio on Javid D. Nordley. Born 1947, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, is a science fiction writer and physicist who writing is kind of is basically most associated with analog science fiction and fact. But like I say, I read this this particular story in fantasy and science fiction. He writes his fiction under the name G. David Nordley, while he he does technical writing, which is actually written under Gerald D. Nordley. He's a Fellow of the British Interplanetary Society and a Senior Member of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. His Into the Miranda Rift was nominated both the Hugo Award for Best Novella and the Nebula Award for Best Novella.
1: Barriers by G. David Nordley. The tables didn't meet exactly that Thanksgiving. Not so bad, I grudgingly admitted, for a twelve-year-old script being acted out across four and a third light years. There was just a little offset. Jenny's plate was a millimetre or two ahead of mine. That was all the difference that meant the eye, just enough to notice the barrier if you knew what to look for. Their side... "'as usual, was a mirror image of ours. "'Uncle Ted even had their turkey legs "'pointing to his left "'to match Dad's turkey legs to the right. "'The china, of course, was exactly the same, "'including the two pieces from Grandma's collection "'that had gone with them when they left for Alpha Centauri. "'Just a traditional family get-together. "'Sure it was.' We all filed in together and waved each other, just like the script said. Aunt Lucy carried in a plate of dressing, which was probably just as good as Mum's and looked exactly like it now. Last year, she hadn't been able to get all the ingredients, but things had apparently gone better this year. A good harvest at the colony, I guessed. Cousins Billy and Linda were bigger and in school now, but otherwise changed much. They were still kids, and we wouldn't get to see them in their teens for a few more years. Traditions are nice, but they feel a little stultifying when they're so rigorously enforced. Of course, there were no choice. If any of us failed to follow the script that Dad and Uncle Ted had worked out ten years ago, it would ruin the illusion for everyone else this was a once a year fantasy of course a charade put on by two stubborn men twin brothers who needed to pretend they were still together but we all went along with it for their sakes so we each followed our cues walked up to the line that divided our families and said our hellos to our counterparts as if there was nothing between us as if the family were whole again and all the space that had come between us was just a bad dream. My sister Sally walked up to little cousin Linda on their side of the table and talked about the great time she was having as a sophomore at Rice. The social life is on a beam line live from here to there a Double C, she said with impossible hyperbole. "'I've been seeing this guy in my vidlet class who's real amphibian, "'takes me to all the dives,' and so on. I kind of smiled to myself and wondering what kind of message she was sending about herself to the 24-year-old woman who would actually be on the other side. "'Cousin Linda just started speaking when her turn came, "'like it said on the script, and Sally had to shut up in mid-sentence.' Linda had made the ninth-grade cheerleading squad and had been on her first date. She'd taken pictures of the sun through the school telescope. She had her own vegetable garden taken up half the wall of a room. Cousin Billy matched Bobby's heightened interest in baseball. The big news was that they had an honest-to-God ball field now under a dome where they could fit four little league games in at once. Bobby related his own junior high exploits and how he managed to get a seat in the sixth game of the World Series this year and watched the Twins win their 13th title against Caracas. Then it was my turn to talk to Jenny. At 13, she was more beautiful than I remembered, and as I looked at the young teenager in front of me, slim and tan in a simple white skirt and shirt, I tried to think of what she'd look like at my age. That got my heart thumping, and I almost forgot what I was going to say. But as soon as I started talking, the damn burst and the words poured out and it looks like I'll get a 3.0 grade point for my first semester if I can just keep this up if my astro engineering major holds up two more years <laughs> I'm going to come see you someday i gone to food dances and the woman out as pretty as you i got a friend named Mary that can really waltz through we're going to try and get on ball time doing a classic JS or maybe the new Merry Widow fantasy by the Lyra Layers yeah, it's all a 300 year a retro time warp you should see all the mariah theresa here on campus mary's just a friend though fun in her own way but she's an ultimate groundhog not someone i'd take to miller's pond that was our secret what we did at miller's pond at five in the morning that exciting sad last week before the split the last time we was allowed to touch each other "'A lot of people think you can't fall in love at eight, "'but I think we were. "'At least she said so. "'So we'd made a sort of comic attempt to do it, "'which amounted to nothing but a lot of bare-naked hugging, "'and it was kind of nice anyway. "'I'd been losing my best friend, "'who'd I'd explored all the woods with, "'made snow angels with, "'and created awful poison potions of mud and weeds "'to feed to cousin Billy.' "'I wish I could have held on to her forever. "'But we were too scared to death of what our parents would do if they caught us, "'so we said goodbye and got back to our respective homes before the adults woke up. "'I told her some more stuff about winning a state fair prize, and then it was her turn. "'I got all my scout badges,' she said. "'Mom and I grew the biggest tomato in the community.' I read all the Nancy Drew on Mars books she sent me last Christmas. Linda's wants me to try it for cheerleaders next year, but I'd rather play moonball. If we get enough kids for a team, Dad's trying to make a real violin out of fiberglass and glue. No electronics, just like they used to be. If it works, I'm going to learn how to play it. She went on about classes, stupid boys and neat teachers, while I looked at her. A college junior eating my heart out. For the last couple of years, the families were together. We just assumed we were going to get married when we grew up, first cousins or not. Maybe if we told someone, it probably wouldn't have made any difference. I really miss you, she finished. And there were tears in her eyes, too. And then we all sat down, said the family graced together right on cue and got down to the food, passing comments across the line about how good everything was. Jenny kept glancing at me and me at her while we ate. I knew that because I was doing some serious looking myself, imagining that she was five years older and not wearing anything under the white blouse. (laughs) When she wasn't eating or looking at me, she was writing something on the palm of her hand. What happened next was kind of weird, like she was reading my mind retroactively. When Uncle Ted and Dad, at exactly the same time, started knocking their wine glasses with spoons, and she knew I'd be looking, she flashed me a note. Well, not flashed. She held it up for a whole minute, grinning, hoping no one would notice on her side. It didn't matter on our side, of course. It said, come to the corner with me after the plum pudding, and I'll show you something you didn't see at Miller's Pond. We all finished the plum putting back on schedule, as we had on the previous ten occasions. And then she got up from her chair and went over to the corner where the inviolable line met the wall of the room and stood with her back to her family, but turned towards the wall, so her back was sort of turned towards us too. I got up and followed her and did the same thing, mirror image, thinking she'd have to do that again ten years from now or... Things would look pretty silly. She stared at where my face would be before I got there and kept staring until I, I felt, ridiculous as it might seem, that we were communing somehow. And then she looked down and I saw she'd opened the front of her shirt so that I could clearly see just the thickening cone and button nipple of a brand new right breast. I looked up again and saw her face with an expression of, well, what? Pride, love, naughtiness, defiance. There were the beginnings of tears in her eyes, and she refastened her shirt. And then she did the unthinkable, breaking all the rules, admitting that this was all an act. And yet at the same time making us... At this Thanksgiving dinner, the most memorable before or since. She put her left hand, the one she'd written on, and placed it right on the barrier, flush against the glass, or whatever it was on her side. Proving it existed, proving that our families were now utterly separated by a barrier of space and time that would have been inconceivable to anyone but astronomers in the previous century. With this act, she admitted that she was an image transmitted 4.3 years ago from a moon of the second planet of Alpha Centauri B, held for another eight and a half months until Thanksgiving, that she really was an unknowable 18 now, wondering if the 20-year-old who received the message she sent five years earlier had thought she was mature enough, (laughs) written on the palm with the words, I will wait 20 years. I said out loud, I'll do it, Jenny. Somehow, I'll really try. If at 13 she had the guts to defy space and time, so did I. You'll do what? Bobby wanted to know. Stifle it, kid. Later. Jenny and I appearing a move in unison despite the 30 trillion kilometres and five years between us, went back to our seats to listen to the after-dinner speeches of our parents, the ones we loved out of duty and secretly hated for tearing us apart when we were too young and too afraid to protest, the ones who carried on this annual tableau which mocked our need to interact, to touch, to feel each other in all voluptuous senses of that word. But we would rebel, oh yes, we would rebel, though it cost us half our lives. (laughs) Five years later, I went to the corner again in synchronisation with a very self-possessed young lady with a glint of laughter in her eye and perhaps a slight blush of embarrassment on her face. But the will was still there. She had written fifteen years on her palm this time. ''I got my commission,'' I wrote on mine. ''I'm coming.'' I knew that that was my last Thanksgiving at home. My first billet would leave from Earthport in January on astronauts and often home for holidays. The old high-res holler screen worked as well as ever, but I could tell Mum and Dad were becoming a little blase about things. Aunt Lucy had just gotten out of the hospital, served roast beef instead of turkey. In five years, the traditional comments about the traditional recipe wouldn't fit. Uncle Ted's hair didn't match Dad's. It wasn't white yet. It was like looking at Dad five years ago. You could see Dad thinking about how much he'd aged. Except for Jenny and me. The synchronization weren't nearly as good either on Uncle Ted's end or on ours. Bob and Bill traded notes on 22nd century chromatistics instead of baseball, talking right over each other. Sally was on Mars and didn't make it leaving Cousin Linda to talk to an empty spot on our side of the line. Of course, Linda wouldn't know that until five years later, when she probably wasn't there herself. We finished dessert early and had to wait ten minutes. But with four Thanksgivings in the pipeline, so to speak, no one quite had the heart to call it quits. I suppose they're still doing it after some fashion. Fifteen years, I thought, as the John Young docked at Caroline Herschel Station, 17 for her. after four maddening hours of shutdown chores, I was free and hustled to the arrival lounge still in uniform crew bag over my shoulder, on a fool's errand. But she was there, traces of frost in her hair, if anything slimmer and more elegant than a last picture. A study in professorial dignity. There were no sign of a husband or boyfriend. She didn't recognize me at first. Must have been the grey in my beard. But a supernova would have had a hard time competing with that grin when she called on to who I was. Then it was all tears and embraces and to hell with dignity and whatever the bystanders <laughs> thought. Yeah, I was two years late. It had taken me five years of bouncing around the solar system and finally wrangling a billet on the young. But when I'd called ahead and asked for a little more time, what? she'd asked me. It's two more years in the face of eternity. And she showed me the palm of her hand. And I laughed, because she'd written there the same thing I'd written on mine. I love you. Don't
4: forget, copyright. G. David Naughty. Martin, thank you very much for a great narration. I will put links on to G. David Nordley's site. You know, please drop him an email if you like that story and you enjoyed it. Tell him, tell him about it. You know, I might get some more of him. Next, we come on to the fact article, and this is by our good friend Mr. Terry Edge. If you are. Wanting to learn to write, you know what I mean? This is the kind of article that's going to help you so much, and especially this one as well, because this is one of the kind of main ones that everyone needs to kind of get under the belt. And I've listened to this, and Terry just gets this point over perfect. So, Terry, thank you very much for this.
0: This week, I'm going to look at the most vital element to get right if you want to truly involve readers in your story. Show not tell. By the way, if you hear someone shouting enunciate in the background, it's my partner. She doesn't know I'm recording an article, she just thinks I mumble a lot. Okay. Now, show not tell can be a difficult concept to grasp. One reason is that we grow up being told stories by parents, teachers, and those hyperactive children's TV presenters with teeth that make you squint. But when we come to write our own stories, it's not a simple case of converting from being a listener to a teller. We have to learn how to show a story instead. But rather than start with written examples, let's take a look at how show-not-tell also affects our lives. One reason for doing this is I believe of all writing techniques, this is the one most directly related how we all communicate with others whether we're writers or not. So you're in a restaurant with a girl. It's the third time you've been out together and your pounding heart says this is serious. You're desperate to know if she feels the same way about you. Everything depends on her answer. Your entire life will change if she says yes. So why not just ask her? She can tell you right up front yes or no, then you won't have to commit your nerves and expectations. You can sit back and enjoy the meal. Well, okay, you won't be too relaxed if she turns you down, but at least you'll know and the agony will be over. The problem is she doesn't want to tell you now because she hasn't fully decided yet. She wants to show you indications, hints, possibilities and see what you show her by return. And even more frustrating for you and your plans, she wants to do this by talking about anything other than what you're desperate to know. It doesn't matter what the subject is because it's what's shown by the way you talk, the actions you make and don't make, that will draw out the magic, if it's there. And let's stop right here because this is the nub of show not tell. If there's magic in your story... It can only be transferred by how you show it working. David Copperfield doesn't come out on stage and just tell you about the elephant he could make disappear and how the trick's done. You want to see the elephant and then not see it. So if you really do have feelings for her, and it's not just some fancy game you're playing on yourself, you'll use that talk about the country's current economical downturn to show her your feelings. And if she has the same feelings, then by the end of the meal, you can just smile at each other and know that both your lives are going to change forever. Then, of course, there's the thorny question of who pays the bill, and that probably requires some telling, truth be told, at least until you know each other better. Now let's look at the opening of two very different novels. Here's the first line of The Fourth Estate by Geoffrey Archer. The odds were stacked against him, but the odds had never worried Richard Armstrong in the past. And here's the first line of Northern Lights by Philip Pullman. Lyra and her demon moved through the darkening hall, taking care to keep to one side, out of sight of the kitchen. And the start of the second paragraph. Lyra stopped beside the master's chair and flicked the biggest glass gently with a fingernail. The sound rang clearly in the hall. So Archer's book begins with two statements that just tell us two things about the character. The odds are against him, but he's not the type to worry about it. Which is fine if we're interviewing him for a job, but there's nothing for us to get involved in. The second statement simply answers the first. Pullman doesn't tell us anything directly about Lyra. He describes her moving in the dark, taking care not to be seen, doing something she probably shouldn't be. So we're instantly drawn in. Why is she doing this? And what sort of person is she? We're on her journey with her. And of course, saying her demon is another great show. What is it? And where can I get one? Next, Pullman shows her stopping, letting her curiosity overcome a fear of discovery, to play with a glass. And not just any glass, the master's glass. So already we know a lot about her, that she's rebellious and reckless and full of curiosity. Yet none of this has been told. There may even be a character clue in the fact she pings the biggest glass. Or there may not be. A more telling author would have told us that she flicked the biggest glass because it was in her nature to always take on the toughest challenge or whatever. But in just showing it, porn creates some space around a character, like a little vacuum that we want to fill with our interest, not necessarily right now. By contrast, blockbuster characters tend to be unmemorable, because you're simply told that they're brave, funny, witty, whatever. To go back to our couple in the restaurant, he could try telling her he's got a good sense of humour and is considerate of others' needs. He might as well tell her he's rich while he's at it, but guess what? She's not going to commit to him until she actually sees his humour and consideration of others in action. Now, here's a passage from Dinky Hocker Shoots Smack by Emmy Kerr. This was a young adult novel published in 1972. P. John Knight got up in creative writing and read his new story, Answered Prayers. It was science fiction. It was about a future world entirely under the control of one man and one woman, Mama and Papa. Everyone took dope which Mama and Papa gave them. Everyone had the same last name, Love. The people with high IQs became slaves and took care of the machines which did all the work. Everyone sat around in stupors, listening to television and saying, Mama loves you, Papa loves you and watching the word love spelled out in endless animated designs. There were no wars, and no one went hungry. Everyone liked everyone else, regardless of race or colour, except for the brains, who lived in automated prisons, guarded by automatons. Notice how she doesn't tell us a single direct thing about P. John Knight, but we know a lot about him from this, and we're involved. We want to see why he thinks this way if he really hates his mother and father as much as he appears to, and if he really is an outcast because of his intelligence, or because he likes to wind up the liberals in his class, or both. Now, Emmy Kerr could have just written something like this. P. John Knight hated his mother and father, and hated the liberal views of his classmates. He also disapproved of drug-taking, and saw himself to be cleverer than most others. But this, of course, is flat and uninvolving. Basically, not as much fun as seeing him directly challenging his classmates. Also, and most importantly, doesn't allow for the shades of feeling P. John actually has for his parents and classmates. Which is very important for his later development. For example, when he sees the real quality in Dinky, where everyone else, including her parents, tends to patronise her because she's overweight and dresses badly. Another kind of telling is dialogue tags. Why tags? Well, because they're like sales tags that say sofa when you're looking at a sofa, just in case you don't know what a sofa is. Dialogue tags tell you what a piece of dialogue is. For example, You asked to see me, sir? Jenkins said apprehensively. Yes, I did, Jenkins, said sir, inscrutably. Sit down, he added unambiguously. Thank you, sir, said Jenkins, obsequiously. And so on. This sort of thing is very strange, not least because people don't do it in real life. Imagine, for example, you're sitting next to our couple in the restaurant, and you hear him say, isn't this great wine, I say, hesitantly. And then she says, yes, isn't it? I reply, non Then he says, what do you think of the current economic downturn, I say suggestively. To which she replies, it's not looking good, I say ironically. Or they could hire a writer to sit between them, so when he says, that's hilarious, the author says he laughed. She says, I'm not sure how I feel, and the author says, she frowned. So why put tags in fiction? Well, one reason is the author doesn't have enough confidence in his dialogue to let it stand on its own. And he may have a point, in which case he needs to rewrite it, until the way it's constructed, in keeping with each character's nature, resonates with feeling. Tags indicate the author wants to make sure you get the point, so he just tells you. But the trouble with this is that readers get lazy if they're told everything which means they don't invest any energy in imagining the characters, which means they end up not caring about them. Besides, people rarely say anything with just one inflection. For example, they could be, say, two-thirds angry with someone, but one-third frightened for them too. So a tag which says, he said angrily, truncates the full range of feelings that might be involved. Essentially, when you see a lot of tags, it means the author is not working hard enough to infuse his dialogue with meaning in its own right. He's just using easy-to-reach, flat pack speech and slapping a display tag on the end so you know exactly what kind of furniture it is he's trying to sell you. Here's how to use dialogue without tags to show character movement. This is the scene in Dinky Hocker Shoot smack where P. John and Dinky meet for the first time. P. John has just said hello to someone else. ''How do you do?'' P. John said. And then he turned back to Dinky. ''You must have another name besides Dinky.'' ''It's Susan,'' said Dinky. Mrs. Hocker said, ''Dinky is our affectionate name for her.'' P. John held his arm out as though Dinky were his partner for the grand march at the beginning of a fancy dress ball. ''Shall we be off, Susan?'' Basically, showing creates meaningful space in which the reader can invest her own appraisal of a character. For example, I once went to a bazaar in Cairo and found a jewellery box I wanted to buy for my girlfriend. So after establishing that the stallholder spoke English, I said, Look, I'm going to say this price, then you'll say something higher, then we'll end up in the middle. So to save time, why don't you just tell me what you want, and I'll pay it. The storeholder looked offended, but fortunately for me chose to explain why. He said, the point of bartering is that I get a chance to see what kind of man you are, and you get to see what kind of man I am. And the final price is part of that. Finally, one more example from life that I hope will encapsulate the value of showing above telling. When I was a student, I once shared a house in Swansea with nine girls. Needless to say, I learnt a lot about girls from that experience, and not all of it fragrant. I used to like Sunday mornings when the girls would drift downstairs to the living room and share stories about what they got up to on Saturday night. I'd sit in the corner and pretend I wasn't there. Some of the stories they told about boys and sex were hilarious, which was interesting since I didn't find sex all that funny especially if I was involved. Of course they knew I was there. They were showing me their stories instead of just telling me. If they'd said, Hey, Terry, we think boys and sex are hilarious. That would have made their views definite. And definite views can be disagreed with, even rejected. Instead, they let me see their views, which is not a case for disagreement you either share in them or not. So, showing also preserves the integrity of the author and the reader. The magic becomes a shared
1: experience, not... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I
3: asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood f-
4: Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, Did we just write an ad? Yes.
3: Bombus: Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use Code Acast for 20% off your first purchase. It's
0: a confrontational one I don't know about you, but telling in stories tends to make me doubt the author's ability to be so definite. And now a writing tip, which is kind of related to what I've been talking about and is to do with enthusiasm. About two and a half years ago, I took a long trip with a friend, and one of the subjects we discussed was my frustration at not getting my novels taken on by publishers, even those who'd published me in the past. My friend, who'd built up a very successful coating business from scratch, at a fairly advanced age, urged me to be more outgoing. Network, he said. Find a mentor, join groups. I was very resistant to this, believing that all that counts is what you write. But later, I gradually and at first reluctantly thought he might just have a point. So I joined some groups. As I mentioned last time, I went to Odyssey and I went to the Milford SF Writing Workshop. I chaired panels at the fantasy conventions. I did a lot more editing, coaching, and mentoring with other writers. Sometimes I came away from an event wondering why I'd done it, because I couldn't see the direct benefit, or thought I hadn't received the benefit I'd expected, but here's the thing, all those activities pumped my enthusiasm, which in turn now affects the way I approach editors and agents. For instance, I put a proposal to an agent a couple of weeks back, in which I talked a lot about all the stuff I'm involved with in science fiction, including this podcast, and also the idea for the book. She came back the very next day to say, yes, yes, yes. And I don't think she was washing her hair at the time with that overexcitable organic shampoo. Now, I don't know what will come of that proposal, but it doesn't matter. The main thing is I've seen how important enthusiasm is. And guess what? Enthusiasm also backflows into one's writing. And when you think about it, it's the most important element of all in making it attractive. Thank you.
4: There you go. I hope that, I honestly hope that helps people out there who are kind of struggling on and learning to write because like you say, I think in the end it probably, you know, I didn't have any of that and you know, practice makes perfect I guess and you could have just kind of messed on and tried to muddle through it but that wasn't the case for me. I just kind of gave up and I bet a few, I bet loads just do that you know, I like give up so I hope, kind of, Terry's inspiring people to kind of, you know, look at it from a different way and kind of think, well, you know, especially you know, kind of enthusiasm, you know, if if you can kind of grab that as well. And I, you know, I, I can kind of relate that to this show. Do you know what I mean? When you get like feedback from this show, that just kind of kicks in overdrive. You know, the way I feel about it. So Terry, thank you very much. And don't forget. Go to the link on the website and you can see the Terry's link there. It'll take you to a kind of special site he's designed or he's set up for you know these kind of articles he's writing for the Starship Sofa. So please send your appreciation to Mr. Terry Edge. Terry, thank you very much, sir. So next we come on to the main part of the show, the main fiction. And it is none other than this year's Hugo Award winning Best Short Story, Tideline by Elizabeth Bear. And I've had this story for a while, and I haven't really wanted to put it out, just in case it won, you know, it kind of snatched first prize. So it it certainly did, and I thought, right, now's the time to get it played. So please pop over to Elizabeth Bear's site, check out all her work there. We have played, actually, one story by Elizabeth Bear once before. Narration today is by... Diane Severson. So, yes, my dream girl. So please pop over to Diane's site and check out everything there. And I hope you enjoy this story.
2: Tideline by Elizabeth Bear Chalcedony wasn't built for crying. She didn't have it in her not unless her tears were cold, tapered glass droplets annealed by the inferno heat that had crippled her. Such tears as that might slide down her skin over melted censers to plink unfeeling on the sand. And if they had, she would have scooped them up with all the other battered pretties and added them to the wealth of trash jewels that swung from the nets reinforcing her battered carapace. They would have called her salvage if there were anyone left to salvage her, but she was the last of the war machines, a three-legged, oblate teardrop as big as a main battle tank, two big grabs and one fine manipulator folded like a spider's palps beneath the turreted head that finished her pointed end, her polyceramic armor spiderwebbed like shatterproof glass. Unhelmed by her remote masters, she limped along the beach, dragging one fused limb. She was nearly derelict. The beach was where she met Belvedere. Butterfly coquinas, unearthed by retreating breakers, squirmed into wet grit under Chalcedony's trailing limb. One of the rear pair, it was less of a nuisance on packed sand. It worked all right as a pivot, and as long as she stayed off rocks, there were no obstacles to drag it over. As she struggled along the tide line, she became aware of someone watching. She didn't raise her head. Her chassis was equipped with targeting sensors which locked automatically on the ragged figure crouched by a weathered rock. Her optical input was needed to scan the tangle of seaweed and driftwood, styrofoam and sea glass that marked high tide. He watched her all down the beach, but he was unarmed and her algorithms didn't deem him a threat. Just as well. She liked the weird flat-topped sandstone boulder he crouched beside. The next day he watched again. It was a good day. She found a moonstone, some rock crystal, a bit of red-orange pottery, and some sea glass worn opalescent by the tide. Whatcha pickin' up? Shipwreck beads, Chalcedony answered. For days he'd been creeping closer, until he'd begun following behind her like the seagulls, scrabbling the coquinas harrowed up by her dragging foot into a patched mesh bag sustenance, she guessed, and indeed he pulled one of the tiny mollusks from the bag and produced a broken-bladed folding knife from somewhere to prise it open with. Her sensors painted the knife pale colors. A weapon, but not a threat to her. Deft enough, he flicked, sucked, and tossed the shell away in under three seconds, but that couldn't be much more than a morsel of meat. A lot of work for very small return." "'He was bony as well as ragged and small for a human, perhaps young. "'She thought he'd ask what shipwreck, "'and she would gesture vaguely over the bay where the city had been "'and say there were many. "'But he surprised her. "'What you gonna do with them?' "'He wiped his mouth on a sandy paw, "'the broken knife projecting carelessly from the bottom of his fist. "'When I get enough, I'm going to make necklaces.' She spotted something under a tangle of the algae called dead man's fingers, a glint of light, and began the laborious process of lowering herself to reach it, compensating by math for her malfunctioning gyroscopes. The presumed child watched avidly. nuh he said. You can't make a necklace out of that. Why not? She levered herself another decimeter down, balancing against the weight of her fused limb, "'She did not care to fall. "'I see what you pick up. "'They's all different.' "'So?' she asked, "'and managed another few centimeters. "'Her hydraulics whined. Some day those hydraulics "'or her fuel cells would fail, "'and she'd be stuck this way, "'a statue corroded by salt air and the sea, "'and the tide would roll in and roll over her. "'Her carapace was cracked.' no longer watertight. "'They's not all beads.' Her manipulator brushed aside the dead man's fingers. She uncovered the treasure, a bit of blue-gray stone carved in the shape of a fat, merry man. It had no holes. Chalcedony balanced herself back upright and turned the figurine in the light. The stone was structurally sound. She extruded a hair-fine, diamond-tipped drill from the opposite manipulator and drilled a hole through the figurine, top to bottom. Then she threaded him on a twist of wire, looped the ends, work-hardened the loops, and added him to the garland of beads swinging against her disfigured chassis. So? The presumed child brushed the little Buddha with his fingertip, setting it swinging against shattered ceramic plate. She levered herself up again, out of his reach. "'Eyes, Belvedere!' He said. Hello, Chalcedony said. I'm Chalcedony. By sunset, when the tide was lowest, he scampered chattering in her wake, darting between flocking gulls to scoop up coquinas by the fistful, which he rinsed in the surf before devouring raw. Chalcedony more or less ignored him as she activated her floods, concentrating on their radiance along the tide line. A few dragging steps later, another treasure caught her eye. It was a twist of chain with a few bright beads caught on it, glass, with scraps of gold and silver foil embedded in their twists. Chalcedony initiated the laborious process of retrieval. Only to halt as Belvedere jumped in front of her, grabbed the chain in a grubby broken-nailed hand, and snatched it up. Chalcedony locked in position, nearly overbalancing, She was about to reach out to snatch the treasure away from the child and knock him into the sea when he rose up on tiptoe and held it out to her, straining over his head. The floodlights cast a shadow black on the sand, illumined each thread of his hair and eyebrows in stark relief. It's easier if I get that for you, he said, as her fine manipulator closed tenderly on the tip of the chain. She lifted the treasure to examine it in the floods, a good long segment, seven centimeters, four jewel-toned shiny beads. Her head creaked when she raised it, corrosion showering from the joints. She hooked the chain onto the netting wrapped around her carapace. Give me your bag, she said. Belvedere's hand went to the soggy net full of raw bivalves dripping down his naked leg. My bag? Give it to me. Chalcedony drew herself up. "'a kilter because of the ruined limb, "'but still two and a half meters taller than the child. "'She extended a manipulator, "'and from some disused file dredged up a protocol "'for dealing with civilian humans. "'Please.' "'He fumbled at the knot with rubbery fingers, "'tugged it loose from his rope belt, "'and held it out to her. "'She snagged it on a manipulator and brought it up. "'A sample revealed that the weave was cotton rather than nylon.' so she folded it in her two larger manipulators and gave the contents a low-wattage microwave pulse. She shouldn't. It was a drain on her power cells, which she had no means to recharge, and she had a task to complete. She shouldn't, but she did. Steam rose from her claws, and the coquinas popped open, roasting in their own juices and the moisture of the seaweed with which he'd lined the net. Carefully, she swung the bag back to him. "'trying to preserve the fluids. "'Caution,' she urged. "'It's hot.' "'He took the bag gingerly "'and flopped down to sit cross-legged at her feet. "'When he tugged back the seaweed, "'the coquinas lay like tiny jewels, "'pale orange, rose, yellow, green and blue, "'in their nest of glass-green alva sea lettuce. "'He tasted one cautiously "'and then began to slurp with great abandon, "'discarding shells in every direction.' Eat the algae, too, Chalcedony told him. It's rich in important nutrients. When the tide came in, Chalcedony retreated up the beach like a great hunched crab with five legs amputated. She was beetle-backed under the moonlight, her treasures swinging and rustling on her netting, clicking one another like stones shivered in a palm. The child followed. You should sleep, Chalcedony said. "'as Belvedere settled beside her on the high, dry crescent of beach "'under the towering mud cliffs where the waves wouldn't lap. "'He didn't answer, and her voice fuzzed and furred "'before clearing when she spoke again. "'You should climb up off the beach. "'The cliffs are unstable. "'It is not safe beneath them. "'Belvedere hunkered closer, lower lip protruding. "'You stay down here. "'I have armor, and I cannot climb.' She thumped her fused leg on the sand, rocking her body forward and back on the two good legs to manage it. But your armor's broke. That doesn't matter. You must climb. She picked Belvedere up with both grabs and raised him over her head. He shrieked. At first she feared she'd damaged him, but the cries resolved into laughter before she set him down on the slanted ledge that would bring him to the top of the cliff. She lit it with her floods, Climb, she said, and he climbed, and returned in the morning. Belvedere stayed ragged, but with Chalcedony's help he waxed plumper. She snared and roasted seabirds for him, taught him how to construct and maintain fires, and ransacked her extensive databases for hints on how to keep him healthy as he grew, sometimes almost visibly, fractions of a millimeter a day. She researched and analyzed sea vegetables and hectored him into eating them. And he helped her reclaim treasures her manipulators could not otherwise grasp. Some shipwreck beads were hot and made Chalcedony's radiation detectors tick over. They were no threat to her, but for the first time she discarded them. She had a human ally. Her program demanded she sustain him in health. She told him stories. Her library was vast, and full of war stories and stories about sailing ships and starships, which he liked best for some inexplicable reason. Catharsis, she thought, and told him again of Roland and King Arthur and Honor Harrington and Napoleon Bonaparte and Horatio Hornblower and Captain Jack Aubrey. She projected the words on a monitor as she recited them, and, faster than she would have imagined, he began to mouth them along with her. So the summer ended. By the equinox, she had collected enough memorabilia. Shipwreck jewels still washed up, and Belvedere still brought her the best of them. But Chalcedony settled beside that twisted, flat-topped sandstone rock and arranged her treasures atop it. She spun salvaged brass through a die to make wire, threaded beads on it, and forged links which she strung into garlands. It was a learning experience, Her aesthetic sense was at first undeveloped, requiring her to make and unmake many dozens of bead combinations to find a pleasing one. Not only must form and color be balanced, but there were structural difficulties. First, the weights were unequal, so the chains hung crooked. Then links kinked and snagged and had to be redone. She worked for weeks. Memorials had been important to the human allies, though she had never understood the logic of it. She could not build a tomb for her colleagues, but the same archives that gave her the stories Belvedere lapped up as a cat laps milk gave her the concept of mourning jewelry. She had no physical remains of her allies, no scraps of hair or cloth, but surely the shipwreck jewels would suffice for a treasure. The only quandary was who would wear the jewelry. It should go to an heir, someone who held fond memories of the deceased And Chalcedony had records of the next of kin, of course, but she had no way to know if any survived, and if they did, no way to reach them. At first, Belvedere stayed close, trying to tempt her into excursions and explorations. Chalcedony remained resolute, however. Not only were her power cells dangerously low, but with the coming of winter, her ability to utilize solar power would be even more limited, and with winter the storms would come and she would no longer be able to evade the ocean. She was determined to complete this task before she failed. Belvedere began to range without her, to snare his own birds and bring them back to the driftwood fire for roasting. This was positive. He needed to be able to maintain himself. At night, however, he returned to sit beside her, to clamber onto the flat-topped rock to sort beads and hear her stories. The same thread she worked over and over with her grabs and fine manipulators, the duty of the living to remember the fallen with honor, was played out in the war stories she still told him, though now she'd finished with fiction and history and related him her own experiences. She told him about Emma Percy rescuing that kid up near Savannah, and how Private Michaels was shot drawing fire for Sergeant K. Patterson when the battle robots were decoyed out of position in a skirmish near Seattle. Belvedere listened and surprised her by proving he could repeat the gist, if not the exact words. His memory was good, if not as good as a machine's. One day, when he had gone far out of sight down the beach, suddenly heard Belvedere screaming. She had not moved in days. She hunkered on the sand at an awkward angle, her frozen limb angled down the beach, her necklaces in progress on the rock that served as her impromptu workbench. Bits of stone and glass and wire scattered from the rock top as she heaved herself onto her unfused limbs. She thrashed upright on her first attempt, surprising herself, and tottered for a moment unsteadily, lacking the stabilization of long-failed gyroscopes. When Belvedere shouted again, she almost overset. Climbing was out of the question, but Chalcedony could still run, Her fused limb plowed a furrow in the sand behind her, and the tide was coming in, forcing her to splash through corroding seawater. She barreled around the rocky prominence that Belvedere had disappeared behind in time to see him knocked to the ground by two larger humans, one of whom had a club raised over its head and the other, which was holding Belvedere's shabby netbag. Belvedere yelped as the club connected with his thigh. Chalcedony did not dare use her microwave projectors. But she had other weapons, including a pinpoint laser and a chemical propellant firearm suitable for sniping operations. Enemy humans were soft targets. These did not even have body armor. She buried the bodies on the beach, for it was her program to treat enemy dead with respect following the protocols of war. Belvedere was in no immediate danger of death once she had splinted his leg and treated his bruises, but she judged him too badly injured to help. The sand was soft and amenable to scooping anyway, though there was no way to keep the bodies above water. It was the best she could manage. After she had finished, she transported Belvedere back to their rock and began collecting her scattered treasures. The leg was sprained and bruised, not broken, and some perversity connected to the injury made him even more restlessly inclined to push his boundaries once he partially recovered. He was on his feet within a week, leaning on crutches and dragging a leg as stiff as chalcedony's. As soon as the splint came off, he started ranging even further afield. His new limp barely slowed him, and he stayed out nights. He was still growing, shooting up, almost as tall as a marine now, and ever more capable of taking care of himself. The incident with the raiders had taught him caution. Meanwhile, Calcedony elaborated her funeral necklaces. She must make each one worthy of a fallen comrade, and she was slowed now by her inability to work through the nights. Rescuing Belvedere had cost her more carefully hoarded energy, and she could not power her floods if she meant to finish before her cells ran dry. She could see by moonlight with deadly clarity, but her low light and thermal eyes were of no use when it came to balancing color against color. There would be forty-one necklaces, one for each member of her platoon that was, and she would not excuse shoddy craftsmanship. No matter how fast she worked, it was a race against sun and tide. The fortieth necklace was finished in October while the days grew short. She began the forty-first, the one for her chief operator, Platoon Sergeant Patterson, the one with the gray-blue Buddha at the bottom, before sunset. She had not seen Belvedere in days, but that was acceptable. She would not finish the necklace tonight. His voice woke her from the quiescence in which she waited the sun. Chalcedony? Something cried as she came awake. Infant, she identified, but the warm shape in his arms was not an infant. It was a dog, a young dog, a German shepherd like the ones teamed with the handlers that had sometimes worked with Company L. The dogs had never minded her, but some of the handlers had been frightened, though they would not admit it. Sergeant Patterson had said to one of them, "'Oh, Chase is pretty much a big attack dog herself.' and had made a big show of rubbing Chalcedony behind her telescopic sights to the sound of much laughter. The young dog was wounded. Its injuries bled warmth across its hind leg. "'Hello, Belvedere,' Chalcedony said. "'Found a puppy!' He kicked his ragged blanket flat so he could lay the dog down. "'Are you going to eat it?' Calcedony he snapped, and covered the animal protectively with his arms. "'Surt!' She contemplated. You wish me to tend it. He nodded, and she considered. He would need her lights, energy, irreplaceable stores, antibiotics, and coagulants and surgical supplies, and the animal might die anyway. But dogs were valuable. She knew the handlers held them in great esteem, even greater than Sergeant Patterson's esteem for Chalcedony. And in her library, she had files on veterinary medicine. She flipped on her floods and accessed the files. She finished before morning, and before her cells ran dry, just barely. When the sun was up and young dog was breathing comfortably, the gash along its haunch sewn closed and its bloodstream saturated with antibiotics, she turned back to the last necklace. She would have to work quickly, and Sergeant Patterson's necklace contained the most fragile and beautiful beads the ones Chalcedony had been most concerned with breaking, and so had saved for last, when she would be most experienced. Her motions grew slower as the day wore on, more laborious. The sun could not feed her enough to replace the expenditures of the night before. But bead linked into bead, and the necklace grew, bits of pewter, of pottery, of glass, and mother of pearl. And the Chalcedony Buddha, "'because Sergeant Patterson had been Calcedony's operator. "'When the sun approached its zenith, Calcedony worked faster, benefiting from a burst of energy. "'The young dog slept on in her shade, "'having wolfed the scraps of bird Belvedere gave it, "'but Belvedere climbed the rock "'and crouched beside her pile of finished necklaces. "'Who's this for?' he asked, "'touching the slack length draped across her manipulator. "'Kay Patterson,' Chalcedony answered adding a greenish-brown pottery bead mottled like a combat uniform. Sir Kay, Belvedere said. His voice was changing, and sometimes it abandoned him completely in the middle of words, but he got that phrase out entire. She was King Arthur's horsemaster and his adopted brother, and she kept his combat robots in the stable, he said, proud of his recall. They were different Kay's, she reminded him. You will have to leave soon. She looped another bead onto the chain, closed the link, and work-hardened the metal with her fine manipulator. You can't leave the beach. You can't climb. Idly, he picked up a necklace, Rodale's, and stretched it between his hands so the beads caught the light. The links clinked softly. Belvedere sat with her as the sun descended and her motions slowed. She worked almost entirely on solar power now. With night, she would become quiescent again. When the storms came, the waves would roll over her, and then even the sun would not wake her again. You must go, she said, as her grabs stilled on the almost finished chain. And then she lied and said, I do not want you here. Who is this for? he asked. Down on the beach, the young dog lifted its head and whined. "'Garner,' she answered. "'And then she told him about Garner and Antony "'and Chavez and Rodriguez "'and Patterson and White and Volshina "'until it was dark enough that her voice and her vision failed. "'In the morning he put Patterson's completed chain "'into Chalcedony's grabs. "'He must have worked on it by firelight through the darkness. "'Couldn't harden the links,' he said, "'as he smoothed them over her claws.' "'Silently she did that, one by one. "'The young dog was on its feet, limping, "'nosing around the base of the rock "'and barking at the waves, the birds, a scuttling crab. "'When Chalcedony had finished, "'she reached out and draped the necklace "'around Belvedere's shoulders while he held very still. "'Soft fur downed his cheeks. "'The male marines had always scraped theirs smooth, "'and the women didn't grow facial hair.' You said that was for Sir Kay. He lifted the chain in his hands and studied the way the glass and stones caught the light. It's for somebody to remember her, Kelsedny said. She didn't correct him this time. She picked up the other forty necklaces. They were heavy altogether. She wondered if Belvedere could carry them all. So remember her? Can you remember which one is whose? One at a time he named them, and one at a time she handed them to him. Rogers and Rodale and Van Medier and Percy. He spread a second blanket out. And where had he gotten a second blanket? Maybe the same place he'd gotten the dog, and laid them side by side on the navy blue wool. They sparkled. Tell me the story about Rodale, she said, brushing her grab across the necklace. He did, sort of. "'with half of Roland and Oliver mixed in. "'It was a pretty good story anyway, the way he told it, "'inasmuch as she was a fit judge. "'Take the necklaces,' she said. "'Take them, their mourning jewelry. "'Give them to people and tell them the stories. "'They should go to people who will remember and honor the dead.' "'Where'd I find all of these people?' he asked sullenly, crossing his arms. "'Ain't on the beach.' "'No.' she said. They are not. You'll have to go look for them. But he wouldn't leave her. He and the dog ranged up and down the beach as the weather chilled. Her sleeps grew longer, deeper, the low angle of the sun not enough to awaken her except at noon. The storms came, and because the table rock broke the spray, the salt water stiffened her joints, but did not yet corrode her processor. She no longer moved and rarely spoke, even in daylight, and Belvedere and the young dog used her carapace and the rock for shelter, the smoke of his fires blackening her belly. She was hoarding energy. By mid-November she had enough, and she waited and spoke to Belvedere when he returned with the young dog from his rambling. You must go, she said, and when he opened his mouth to protest, she added, It is time you went on errantry? His hand went to Patterson's necklace, which he wore looped twice around his neck, under his ragged coat. He had given her back the others, but that one she had made a gift of. Errantry? Creaking, pouted corrosion grating from her joints, she lifted the necklaces off her head. You must find the people to whom these belong, he deflected her words with a jerk of his hand. They's all dead. The warriors are dead, she said, but the stories aren't. Why did you save the young dog? He licked his lips and touched Patterson's necklace again. Because you saved me, and you told me the stories about good fighters and bad fighters, and so, see, Percy would have saved the dog, right? And so would Hazelrah. Emma Percy, Chalcedony was reasonably sure, would have saved the dog if she could have, and Kevin Michaels would have saved the kid. She held the remaining necklaces out. Who's going to protect the other children? He stared, hands twisting before him. You can't climb. I can't. You must do this for me. Find people to remember the stories, find people to tell about my platoon. I won't survive the winter. Inspiration struck. So I give you this quest, Sir Belvedere. The chains hung flashing in the wintry light. The sea combed gray and tired behind them. What kind of people? People who would help a child, she said, or a wounded dog, people like a platoon should be. He paused. He reached out, stroked the chains, and let the beads rattle he crooked both hands and slid them into the necklaces up to the elbows taking up her burden
4: well that kind of wraps up show number 39 of oral delights wow that they're kind of mounting up as well do you know what i mean The kind of your shop rattle these kind of or shop rattle these shows out, you know, thirty-nine, nearly forty. So, hope you enjoyed it. I hope everything's alright. If you do want to, you know, pop over to the forum, say hello, please by all means do that. That would be fantastic. Don't forget, I'm doing the Starship Sanatorium shows, and I might put a, a couple more out throughout this kind of month, and you know, the idea is that you'll go over and sign up on the the kind of monthly PayPal donation, which is £2.50, and then eventually, them oral, them Starship Sanatorium shows that's going to become a private feed, and that's what you'll get, you know. And, and it's all kind of if you do it, you know, just think you kind of you're, you're in your own little way, you're kind of helping out run this magazine, you know, like a monthly donation certainly helps, you know. If everyone kind of chipped in, just helped out, it would make this a, a fine magazine. So much appreciated, thanking in advance. Don't forget, honestly, send us emails, you know what I mean? It's just like you say, I'm recording this and that, it's, you kind of, you do need kind of, I know that sounds weird, but you do need like people to say, hey Tony, that's alright, That thank you very much. That helps, I swear to God, that helps so much. So, honestly, send an emails, tell us where you are, tell us what you're doing, say hello, tell us your, your, your mother-in-law's teeth, anything. That would be fantastic, you don't often tell us about your mother-in-law's teeth. Just her underwear. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what's on about, man? I think the heat's still playing on my mind. <laughs> I don't even know if mother knows underwear. So, that is the end of Oral Delights number 39. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please check out on Saturday. I don't know what kind of show I've got. Hopefully, it's going to be, fingers crossed, it's going to be me doing one of them old shows. Remember them old style shows I used to do? It's going to be JG Ballard. Yes, I'm finally getting round with it. Well, I've got my notes anyway, so fingers crossed I can kind of get my notes together and i am trying to get a show out on Saturday. If not, I've got not a clue what's going to happen. So there you go. Professional as ever. I hope you enjoyed it. Good day from me. Ooh.
1: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Stortion
3: Sofa. A procedure Shovel set for launch. Airlock will be in 3, two, 1...